Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, young adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I have Giuseppe Riva, PhD, a full professor of general and cognitive psychology at the Catholic University in Milan, Italy, where he is also the director of Human Technology Lab, the HT Lab. Riva is also the founder and director of the Applied Technology for Neuropsychology at the Instituto Alexico Italiano. I probably butchered that, so I apologize where in the last 20 years, he's tested many of the current clinical applications of VR, from stress management to eating and weight loss disorders. In the lab, he has also offered the COVID Feel Good Virtual Therapeutics Experience, covidfeelgood.com, the only free validated and multilingual 13 different languages from English to Farsi to Japanese VR experience for coping with the negative psychological effects, anxiety, and depression of coronavirus. So without any delay, I would like to welcome Josippe, Riva. Ciao. Ciao from Italy. Ciao, brother. It's so good to see you. I am so excited to talk with you today. How are you doing today? Oh, fine. Uh, now in Italy, it's 9 p.m., so uh, it's a little late. Uh, you see the sky is dark now. Okay. Uh, technically, it's dark. It's all dark all around me, but that is yeah. all through, my, <laughs> through my, my own augmented reality. I... Uh, you know, man, there was a, and I think it was 2015, you were at the Behavioral Change Conference over at Stanford, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing you speak back then, and uh, you, were, you were one of three dudes that I saw that I was like, okay, this guy is actually truly deep diving into how to use virtual reality for uh, change, for physical change, psychological change, and, and all of that. And I was so excited uh, to finally get you on the podcast here. I would love to just kind of learn just a little bit about your origin stories of what actually got you into combining both um, psychological change and virtual reality um, technologies together as one. So, um, yeah, what's your what? How did you get into the space? Well, it's a, a long story. I was very young at that time. It was 1994. I was completing my PhD in psychology and. Uh, I was facing uh, an interesting issue. Uh, I have uh, uh, a friend, a girl, uh, who had problem with uh, body image. You know, she was uh, anorectic at the time. And uh, I was very surprised by the fact that uh, she was a very intelligent lady, uh, very smart, but uh, she experienced her body has uh, a real pain and uh, even if uh, I can discuss with her and she agreed on something I tried to, to explain to them to her well uh, she was not able to modify her experience of the body at that time I tried for the first time uh, uh, the commercial virtuality virtual reality experience in London and it was a uh, uh, it provided me a great insight. I discovered that uh, virtual reality was able to modify my experience of the body. That mm. uh, before I expected to be my real own experience, the, the body is something that you can touch, you can experience, you can feel. And you don't consider it as uh, 
the product of simulation. You feel something real. However, entering virtual reality experienced the, a change in the way I feel myself. And I said, well, uh, this experience is so powerful that if we can understand how to use it for improving people, probably we have a very powerful tool for change. Mm. And since then, I try to understand. I am a cognitive psychologist, so uh, to, I have two souls. So on one side, I work in a hospital trying to find solutions for treating people with many different diseases. On the other side, I'm a, a basic uh, scientist, so I do a lot of uh, lab work in order to understand what, what is happening when you try virtual reality. And putting them together, I discovered that uh, virtual reality is very powerful in modifying uh, our intuitive experience. Uh, mm. According to cognitive psychology, we have two different parts of our brain, a rational one that is uh, based on thinking, an intuitive one that is based on simulation. This intuitive one uh, is, is the most difficult to change. You can uh, work on the rational level. Sometimes you know that you have to change. But when you try to do, to change yourself, you find many, many block road that stops you in some way. So the idea is that uh, virtual reality is the key for modifying your intuitive level and through the change of our intuitive level we can really uh, go deep in our brain and make uh, things that otherwise are not possible hmm. so if i'm hearing you correctly is that so you had a you had an experience the experience yeah. of virtual reality in london changed your perception because you realized you had not only an attachment to yourself, but you felt almost had like a fundamentally uh, deeper and different attachment using virtuality to in tune with yourself. That's right. right. Yes. And then so from that, you realize that we basically we have a couple different brains, one brain being the fact that we're logical, we're fact based, we yeah. have that. And then we have the intuitive uh, feeling sensations, but also your, your ability, which sounds like you're also talking about mental models. The ability yeah. to create simulations in your mind. The only thing is that sometimes we have these blocks. We have these things that don't allow us to change. Now that could be um, identity or ego or other things that, that, that prevent us. And you feel that virtual reality um, really gives you the ability to overcome your own internal blocks um, inside of you. Is that is that kind of a, a summation of what you just mentioned? That's right. Uh, one of the features of uh, our intuitive brain is that uh, it's automatic. So mm. it works without uh, your control. When uh, the intuitive part starts, uh, you cannot stop it. Uh, I don't know, for instance, uh, uh, you can have craving. You have the urge of eating, of playing, of something. And when you have this urge, is something that you cannot control. It's automatic. It drives you crazy because you want to eat, you want to play, you want to something to do something. And uh, uh, stopping uh, these automatic uh, behaviors is very, very difficult. And typically, in addiction, this is the the, the main problem. And these uh, automatic behaviors are driven by simulation. So the idea that you your brain predicts in advance uh, the end. So the brain predicts that uh, when you will see a specific stimuli, 
you will go till the end. And changing this simulation is very, very difficult unless you don't use another simulation. This is why virtual reality has been used, for instance, uh, in dealing with anxiety or in dealing with uh, uh, addiction, because in some way you can modify this automatic process and uh, reprogram itself in, in a way that is not dangerous anymore. Mm. Just to, 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 make an, to make it more clear for our, our audience, uh, you, you have uh, in uh, a typical eating disorder is uh, bulimia. You have uh, the urge of eating and then you have vomiting at the end. Uh, in this mechanism, uh, there is uh, something such as uh, uh, an emotional event uh, or uh, the view of a food that starts uh, this automatic process. However, using virtual reality, you can construct the same situation and uh, try to make the individual aware of this process and uh, reduce the impact of the negative emotion. Negative emotions uh, decrease the intensity the more we experience a given stimuli. So if I see, I, am, I have a fear of a dog. The first time I see the dog, I have a strong fear. The 10th the time I see the same dog, my fear decreases. So uh, with virtual reality, you can make our brain adapt to the specific stimuli, to the fear, fearful stimuli, and in this way, you break the automatic uh, mm. link between stimuli and emotion, stimuli and behavior. And this is very, very powerful. And you cannot do that in another way. Yeah. So, uh, That's super interesting. So l l I want to reflect back just a little bit on what you're talking about here. So uh, stimulation is the first step for your model, for your mental model to create a simulation in your mind which kind of yeah. takes you all the way through to the end process, which there's emotions and there's no pathways and there's things that just, that say, okay, um, smell a donut. Oh my God, I want the donut. And then you yeah. picture eating the donut, you want a donut, and then you, this cravings kind of almost without your control puts you on the path. And the, the, the value of what virtual reality can do, it, it can recreate those environments and bring, and bring those patterns to the surface. And, and then once you become aware of, of that pattern, you can kind of desensitize yourself to that pathway because you're aware and then you can actively choose new pathways so that when you get stimulated a grin, you have now a new simulation in your mind to go down with the assistance of virtual reality. Is that, is that That's right. It is the same concept also used by mindfulness, another very popular process of dealing with our brain. In mindfulness, you try to be aware of this automatic behavior. So the mindfulness is uh, trying to focus your attention on what you do, including automatic behavior, because the more you are aware of uh, your automatic behaviors, the easier you can control themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, mindfulness is difficult. If you try mindfulness, uh, well, uh, you, you need to be very, very focused. Virtual reality is much easier because you can construct the environment, the stimuli, in order to make uh, to, to reach your goal. So you, you try to meet uh, what the brain expects, and uh, this is much easier. In mindfulness, uh, you have to focus on 
uh, your flow of thought and well it's difficult to control it with yeah. virtual reality you can uh, split the process in many experience small experience blocks that you can change one after another and this is very very powerful that's awesome so it's almost like a uh, virtual reality is almost like training wheels for your mental model and it allows you a way to kind of outsource your 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 mindfulness in an environment that that is it puts you in the environments so that that it's it creates more of a solid virtual reality versus your mind you could be you could be concentrating on it and then you can get easily distracted you can get knocked off of it so it's it's really hard to kind of stay in that pocket and go through yeah. it but it, but if you have virtual reality you kind of it's it creates the environment around you and so it, it it it's a container for you to kind of explore that that um that mental model activity you have. So it seems like training wheels for mindfulness is almost what I'm, I'm hearing you say. That's true. The real problem in mindfulness is keeping attention on your flow of uh, thinking. And uh, this flow is always changing. And you try to, to keep uh, on track, but uh, everything's changed around you. In virtual reality, you have this environment that uh, is developed for make you focus on a single experience a single piece of, of the overall experience mm. so you uh, don't have distraction and yeah. uh, is much much easier mm -hmm. so then let me ask you what are a couple of the uh main ones that you've seen that, that have had the most impact using vr what are the what are the ones that you find to be the most beneficial um, situations or environments or addictions or things that that come up that that VR has the biggest impact for? Well, for sure, uh, any emotional issue. I, I think that uh, all the form of anxiety disorders that in which you have uh, uh, this basic mechanism, you have a stimulus, then you have an automatic response at the end. Uh, this kind of situation uh, can produce uh, a lot of change through virtual reality. So any form of anxiety disorders uh, can have a big boost uh, through the, the process of virtual reality. Uh, but also, I think that uh, uh, the, next, the next frontier will be degenerative disease. I think that virtual reality can also provide a lot of insights and probably solution for slow down many uh, cognitive diseases such as Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's. So in this sense, I think that uh, virtual reality can be very, very powerful on the clinical side, even if there are still many problems who have prevented virtual reality uh, to be really used inside the clinical world. In mm -hmm. Europe, probably, there are only one out of 100 clinics that are experiencing daily virtual reality treatment. It is just a small fraction of the overall impact that we can achieve through virtual reality. So you're saying one out of 100 clinics um, use VR at most kind of thing, and so uh, there's a, a an opportunity to really step. It's just the early dawn age of, of virtual reality um, being used in the clinical setting. Um, 
one thing uh, you're talking about Parkinson's I've actually seen so I was a judge uh, lead judge over at the creating reality hackathon over at USC uh, University of Southern California and one of the have you seen the application that came out of there? Because I was a I was a judge for it, and one of the yes, uh, well, uh, Skip Rizzo is a, a longtime friend, and uh, they have created most of uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, application used in research. So I think that uh, their work uh, is uh, has been really important. However. Th their work is mostly research work. So they, they work more on uh, research and th the critical side is moving uh, virtual reality from research, from the labs to the clinic. And this is a big challenge because uh, uh, still we don't have uh, any VR course uh, inside the uh, psychology faculty or very small. In my university, I have added a course on that, but in most... Uh, of uh, the psychology clinical university in Europe, you don't have a specific course telling you how to use virtual reality and what is the potential of this technology for the clinical world. Yeah, and um, uh, Skip has done a lot of work over at USC for sure. Um, I, I, know him, um, I, I know him pretty well. I was actually referencing a different um, a group of people at the hackathon, you know, like a hackathon where people get together yeah. and they build stuff. So one of the groups of uh, engineers, they took um, shaky camera stability, that the shaky cam, yeah. and they put it inside a controller. So for people with Parkinson's, it would normify the hand so that they could then draw or have a higher quality of life as they're drawing um, inside there. And then they were doing training inside VR for Parkinson's and same thing like phantom limb syndrome. They were using that to train the, train the mental model inside there. Have you seen that at all? Have you seen that being used in the clinical settings at all? There are some attempts uh, because uh, the, the real problem of uh, the technology created in Akaton is that typically they don't have the requirements that are needed by the clinical work. For instance, uh, uh, to be used in a clinic, uh, a device has to be a medical device. This means in the U.S. that uh, you have uh, to obtain an FDA approval. In Europe, you have uh, a medical device approval from uh, a central institution. This means that uh, even if the, the, the concept works quite well, you have to prove it uh, through clinical work and this side is the big problem because uh, even if the uh, the Akaton outcome is really really promising to be used in a clinic you have to, to be sure that it is not harmful for any patient and this means a lot of money for clinical trials now the big barrier for uh, using VR uh, effectively is like uh, a new drug. If you want to put a new drug in the market, you have to spend a lot of money for clinical trials. Unfortunately, we have to do the same for many applications of VR. And this is obviously a barrier because yeah. until we have uh, pharmaceutical companies investing in VR, uh, will be very difficult for small companies having the amount of money that testing at a, a clinical uh, device uh, is will require. Yeah, and there and there are I mean there are medic, uh, pharmaceutical companies investing in VR applications um, to to get them 
you pass the, the the barriers. So I know some of them are using uh, virtual reality for drug design, where you can take the molecules and you can tweak yeah. and doing that. And then through like the 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 blockchain, you can then say ownership. And so I know pharmaceutical companies have been backing uh, companies that I know of that do that. Um, and I know that there was a USC company um, that just got recently FDA approval for their virtual reality application, uh, which was for breathing um, and VR. Um, so I've seen that, but you're right. I mean, but isn't it always, I mean, there's, that's not an issue necessarily with virtual reality. That's more of the, the fact that the medical, um, uh, industry, uh, has lots of red barrier tapes to, to get through. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a, 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 a challenge of virtual reality more so of the, the system. Well, this is true. I think that uh, there are some barrier because, uh, uh, a big challenge that FDA has to face now is that now uh, there is a, a, a big growth of the concept of digital therapeutics and virtual reality obviously is a typical digital therapeutic tool. And uh, uh, digital therapeutics are different from the typical drug. So uh, trying to apply the same process required for a drug to a digital therapeutic probably is a mess. Yeah. It's too, too complicated. And uh, FDA in the last year tried to uh, introduce a speedy process for this kind of uh, digital therapeutic that, in my opinion, can help a lot because uh, it, it's obvious that uh, virtual reality is not a drug. Uh, yeah. because you don't have this drug in your body. We know very well after 24 years, uh, the effects of virtual reality on our body. We know the side effects. We know how to cope with them. So uh, probably we need uh, a different approach. And uh, if uh, this will happen, I'm sure that FDA is working on that, uh, probably the process will be easier. As you said, uh, in the last year, Two different U.S. companies were able to obtain FDA approval for their digital therapeutic. And this, I think, uh, is a, a big boost for other companies in the field because uh, if this path can be followed by others, uh, probably we will have, uh, in a short term, a lot of different packages that clinical can buy and use. Because the big problem now is that if you're a clinician that is interested in virtual reality and you want to use it in your own clinic or in your own office, in your study, well, the problem is that you don't have many tools to buy. You have to program yourself, but it's clear that it's not a possible solution. Even yeah. if uh, we know very well, because now in, in the last uh, probably... 10 years uh, in scientific literature, we can find more than 1,000 papers justifying mm -hmm. the use of virtual reality in many different pathologies. Yeah. What about in terms of, have there been any uh, solid um, evidence-based models or uh, psychology practices uh, like behavioral conditioning or... Um, uh, any of the other ones that pop up that you see as a really good fit for VR? Well, uh, I think that cognitive behavioral therapy fits very well with VR in the sense that uh, 
the principles of cognitive behavioral therapies can be easily adapted to the characteristic of virtual reality. So in this sense, I think that uh, uh, is not so complex. And uh, uh, now many of the most effective virtual reality devices and protocols available now are based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Because cognitive behavioral therapy uh, provides uh, very clear predictions that can be easily tested in VR. I think that the best advantage of virtual reality is that uh, you can test if it works or not. So, for instance, uh, for uh, uh, one of the main principles of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is the concept of desensitization, that the more you are exposed, the, the less is the response. And with virtual reality, you can easily test that. You, you can expose people and check the level of uh, emotional arousal through biosensor. You can see that the process works. So I think that uh, CBT is probably the most effective model for the use of virtual reality now. Uh, probably uh, we can also do more. I think that uh, uh, in neuroscience now there is... Uh, an emerging paradigm that is called uh, the predictive coding brain. The idea that our brain is uh, uh, a simulator that tries to predict in advance the outcome of action, of, uh, <coughs> sorry, of behavior. And uh, the more the prediction is right, the more you are able to face the problems, the, the <coughs> sorry, the perils inside your environment. And uh, this model is quite interesting because it also predicts that when the predictions are wrong, so when our brain is not able to do good prediction, you experience some form of pathology. And uh, in this way, it also suggests that by correcting a wrong prediction, you probably will be able to heal people. Hmm. And concept is new because this uh, idea of uh, predictive coding appeared uh, in, in the new century so about uh, 20 years ago and uh, so we need more research but uh, clinically is very very promising yeah so i mean uh, reflect on that because I'm, I'm familiar with the predictive coding so if you uh, what i don't fully understand is the difference between uh mental models and predictive coding uh in, in terms of like, how do you, so predictive coatings is you're, you're making assumptions about if I, if I smell this donut, I eat the donut, I go through the donut, and then I'm, I'm going to feel good about the donut, I want the donut. That is, I, 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 what is the difference between creating a mental model and predictive coding for the brain? In predictive coding, the mental models are based on your previous experience. So uh, the, the more you do an experience before, the more this prediction will be based on your past. So the idea is that mental model, the overall concept of metal models means that you have some uh, schema in your brain that drives your behavior. Predictive coding means that this schema is based on your past experience. So if you were not lucky and your past experience were not so happy, this prediction may drive you crazy because you can think that uh, because the, the, the past was not happy for you, the future will be again very very dark mm. so uh, predictive coding uh, 
suggest that the analysis of the experience of the individual is relevant to understand uh, the, the, the mental model. So mm. uh, each one mental model is based on uh, his own past, their, their own past, and this past uh, is not the only possible past. We can have many different pasts. So uh, with virtual reality, you can experience a different past. Uh, mm. There is a, a lot of uh, research that try to make you change your own body. So, for instance, there is a study very interesting made by a colleague, a Spain colleague, uh, Professor Slater, working in the University of Barcelona, in which he tried to put people in the body of Albert Einstein. Uh, people who were not good in maths, so people who had problems in maths, entered and experienced the, the body of uh, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was a genius in math. So what happened when people entered the, in the body of uh, Albert Einstein that their cognitive skills, in, in particular the math skills, improved automatically because being in the body of a genius makes them predict that uh, they will work as a genius. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like uh, a big placebo, placebo effect. We know that yeah. uh, the placebo effect, when you think that uh, this pill will be positive for you, the pill will be positive for you. Uh, virtual reality can allow you to create a, a big placebo experiences that can modify your predictions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's interesting. Like, how would you put yourself inside the body of Albert Einstein? So you're, you're in his office, you look down, you see his, you see his crazy white hair in the mirror, or like, it, it's an interesting, uh, how would you create that effect using virtuality? Uh, yes, uh, it's an interesting effect. Uh, it's based on the rubber end illusion. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept. Rubber end illusion is a, an experiment in which uh, you hide your real end and you put a rubber end in front of you and you touch at the same time the rubber end and your real end. And mm -hmm. after some time, uh, seeing uh, the rubber end touched and uh, experience the real, real end touched at the same time makes your brain predict that the, the real brain, the real hand is not the, the one hided, but the one, the rubber end that you can see. And th the same approach works with Albert Einstein. You, have a first-person view in virtual reality of Albert Einstein, and uh, you see in the mirror that uh, someone touches the, the body of Albert Einstein, and you experience your own body touched at the same time. After five minutes of uh, uh, simultaneous touch and view, touch and view, your brain thinks that uh, your own body is not the real one, but the one you see in virtual reality. Got it. Got it, got it. Yeah, so so uh, again, training wheels. You're simulating the experience of Albert Einstein by going through and living a day in his shoes. You're making kinesthetic connections by them touching you. And then you, yeah. you basically create these like false neural pathways to a degree that, that now you have an association with you being that embodied character of Albert Einstein. That that makes a lot of sense. How does, how does narrative therapy uh, coincide with predictive models? If you look at narrative therapy and predictive coding, uh, and it sounds like predictive coding creates the mental models. So how does narrative therapy, therapy type into predictive coding along the way? Ooh, I got, I got a link from you. 
Yeah, yeah, this is the, the experiment of Albert Einstein. So if uh, the audience want to read uh, what happened and uh, check the, the experiment, I think that could be nice. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's awesome. We can we can we can drop that in. Um, I'll throw that across the group. No, uh, you was yes, that's uh, is the that's great. Um, you were asking if, uh, in which way, the predictive coding uh, mechanism uh, can be used in virtual reality. Well, I I'm trying well, to no, use. No, no, no. Spe specifically, oh, I, was, I was I was asking the question around how does how does predictive coding and narrative therapy work? So, narrative therapy being basically being able to change and alter your own stories. It sounds like predictive coding is just another word for for re reassigning the meaning behind the past experiences. Yes, that's true. It's not so different from what you can do with drama therapy in the sense that you try to re-experience this experience and providing a different meaning. The problem is that you typically use memory to do that, but memory is not so rich and we know that memory can be difficult to to change uh, having a, a real experience uh, allow you to modify memories so uh, and also modify a, a, a wrong uh, prediction for instance we are using virtual reality now for uh, dealing with anorexia nervosa in anorexia nervosa uh, it's clear that the brain of the anorectic makes a wrong prediction the prediction is that the fat, the body is very fat, but the real, uh, the real body is very, very thin. So there is, a, in my opinion, this, uh, my view, uh, this, uh, this morphophobia is created by a wrong prediction of the brain, and the challenge is how we can modify this wrong prediction. And for instance, we use the. Uh, body swapping, uh, the, the, the same technique that has been used uh, with Albert Einstein. So we try to put uh, the anorectic girl uh, in, in the body of, uh, uh, in a different body to force the brain to change the prediction. Mm -hmm. Because uh, uh, when you do a, uh, when the brain ma makes a wrong prediction, it is uh, forced to change the prediction itself in order to. Uh, be able to include a new experience inside the, the model, the brain model. So putting the, the, the girl inside a different body was able to force the brain to change the, the, the mental body. Yeah. And we have found that uh, this approach can be very, very effective uh, in this situation. So the idea is this one, that you try to change a wrong prediction by uh, creating experiences that are not able that cannot be predicted by the brain okay so, i mean so what you're saying is with the uh so predictive coding is what you think is going to happen based upon a stimuli or an event and yeah. so inside virtual reality you're creating new memories um yeah which are which are which is reshaping the predictive coding saying um when i look in the mirror I feel this way, right? And that's the that's the that's the coding, right? Uh, and then yeah. you put them inside virtual reality, and they look inside a virtual mirror, and they see something different, which then forces them to basically alter their predictive coding because there is now a discrepancy between their mental model and the virtual reality that they see before them, right? right. So, 
right. So, so it's interesting. So then if you're doing that, then, but then, but if you do that, the predictive coding, it sounds like they're creating a new narrative in their own mind. And I, I and I'm still trying to, to wrap my head around if I expose myself to a mirror in virtual reality and I see myself as skinny, then I have an internal narrative that goes, Oh, I must be a skinny person or oh, insert the, the new storyline that they get um, from that experience. Um, is there, is there, uh, is there a thing where you're inside virtual reality, you get exposed to that experience and that experience then creates a new narrative, which then shapes your predictions, which then creates a new, um, behavioral change. Is that, that that's right. This is the path. Uh, we are testing now in different studies. The idea is that in this way, you, you make, uh, uh, well, we have this experience of awe, uh, the marvel, uh, in which you we know that uh, cognitive science suggests that uh, the, the experience of awe is a very transformative experience because after the, the marvel uh, that uh, makes you say, wow, uh, you are forced to change your predictive coding. And uh, if we are able to create this awe effect using virtual reality, uh, probably we, we can induce a change, an automatic change that can be then modeled in order to achieve also the behavioral change that you expect. Mm -hmm. This is the difficult part, so that you have to produce the O and then uh, try to drive this O in a different change. Uh, well, typically in life, the experience of O are very few we don't have so many experiences. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, the first time I had this experience when, when I, I reached a peak in, uh, in the Alps in Italy, and I was surprised. Uh, I was to, to the top of this mountain. I was uh, looking around. There were no skies. Uh, it, it was uh, a great experience in which I said, wow, I am so small, and the world is so, so big. And this make me touched me and this experience uh, suggests to me that the experience of going to the, the mountain is something that can open your heart. Not for anyone is the same, but uh, uh, this experience uh, was uh, strong enough in order to make me reflect and uh, yeah. try to modify myself in some way. Well, virtual reality is very powerful in creating all experience. For instance, in my lab, we uh, try to put uh, individuals in uh, a virtual space. So you were put uh, inside the universe in the middle of planets and you floated in the middle. And this, for many students that were involved in this experience, uh, was a uh, uh, very powerful experience because they felt themselves uh, uh, different. They were floating, they were free, they were small inside this big uh, universe. And uh, for many of them, uh, this experience was uh, something that uh, pushed them to say, wow, I, I can change. After this experience, I can do different things. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably driving the O effect uh, and uh, being able to model behaviors using it, this is the challenge, 
I think that we can have new ways of uh, creating uh, a long-term change. Yeah, you know, I, I, well, I have a question about long-term change, but let me tell you a theory I, I've made up and I'd love, to, I'd love to get your opinion on it. Is, um, <clears throat> so what you're talking about a lot, when you look up and you see the cosmos or you stand on top of a mountain, you see yeah. all of a sudden like you're inside a small hole and then you look outside and you see this whole wonder and you take in all this beauty and you have that sense of awe where you literally go, ah, right. I think yeah. I, what I think that is, and, and this is, this is, this is not, uh, I, I'm, I am not a PhD, but this is just my own interpretation on it is, um, when you look at a screen, you have a rendering, you render, you see what's yeah. on screen. It's called rendering. Right. And, and generally when you take in too much of an environment, the, 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 you max out your ability to render something. You match out what your ability to see. And I think when you actually in real life, when you take on so much beauty, your brain, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, you're rendering too much beauty and your mind goes into a state of awe, which you can't process it, which now forces you to expand your possibilities. Cause you're like, does not compute. Ah. And so I think that sense of awe is a rendering issue that your brain is trying to recalculate how much beauty it can squeeze, squeeze into its own capacity at a certain time. And I don't know what your thoughts are around that. No, I think that uh, there, it's true in the sense that uh, uh, for the brain, uh, the brain is forced to change to, to as you say, to new rendering because uh, uh, what we have predicted in advance is not good enough to, to explain what you are experiencing at that specific moment. So I think that is true. Uh, a new re new rendering experience. Yeah, thank you. I, I was just I was curious. I don't uh, I don't get to talk to a lot of people about this. So I was uh, it was interesting. Um, you talked about creating a lasting change. Yeah. How do you how do you because in the moment you know change in a moment is quick, but then people can flip back. Is there ways to leverage VR for lasting change? Is there ways that you can, because you can create that sense inside virtual reality, but how do you create a sustainable, lasting, transformative change um, using virtual reality, either as a piece or the whole? Wow, uh, great question. I think that uh, a long-term change is related to and a, a, a new rendering, as you said, that the, the, uh, when you have a long-lasting change, uh, your prediction has to, ch to change itself. So uh, the virtual reality has to be so unexpected, so new for you that uh, your prediction have to be shaped again from scratch. Uh, for instance, entering in a new body is an experience that you never experienced before. It, that is not possible to have outside virtual reality. You can enter in another body. And uh, doing this experience, for instance, for me, was very strange uh, uh, when I entered for the first time in the, the body of a female. And uh, it was surprising because I had no breasts. Uh, I look down and said, "Wow, I have to breast now," and <laughs> and uh, it was totally new uh, for me. And this kind of uh, uh, surprise push you to change, uh, and in some way, uh, this change tend to be long-lasting. For instance, this approach has been used to reduce uh, 
stigma against women. Uh, so uh, some colleagues put uh, uh, guys who had problems in relationship with, with women inside the body of a woman, and they experienced much more empathy and uh, mm. understanding and in this new body than before. Yeah. And the same, for instance, for people who had problems with black people, entering in the body of black men was able to produce a long-term change. So I think that the key for uh, obtaining this long-term change is having virtual reality, a really surprising experience that your prediction is not able to handle easily. That's awesome and beautiful. I, I, had, um, uh, I had this one experience uh, where normally I'm completely against 360 video, you know, 360 video as an environmental thing. I think it's terrible. I think it's an awful, awful experience. Um, the, the reason being is that generally VR is all about being embodied, right? Where you can do anything, be anything, yeah. you can dance around on stuff. And 360, you're basically a ghost with no arms, no legs, and you're on a torso and you can just do this. And that's all you, that's all you really get versus you can do so much more in a multiplayer, fully interactive environment. But there was this wow. one, there was this one case there's this one case that I thought it was fantastic. I was doing a sexual harassment training in 360 video, and I was a girl sitting down having coffee. And this guy walks up, and he comes into my space, and where his his junk is right in front of me, and I, I can't go anywhere, and I am trapped. I'm physically trapped in that environment, and, and I have to look up, and it's so imposing. I'm like, man, if this is what it feels like to be a girl and you're stuck inside like a, an environment where you, you can't move to where that thing that I hated so much, they leveraged it as a tool because it was, a, I felt like I just like wanted to lean back. I'm like, get out of my space. And I thought that was a, an amazing, I have empathy now um, for women that have to be in a situation like that where they feel, feel trapped. Um, and that definitely expanded my, my thoughts of possibilities. So you're saying that Basically, it has to be so intense that you now have that as a part of your predictions. That is now a factor uh, that you can weigh in. And if it's if it's heavy enough in weight, then it can change your ultimate predictions. You just have to you have to design it properly. So when you're when you're designing these types of experiences for behavioral change, what are some of the key elements that you found? to have those types of impacts on people? What are the questions you ask? What are the, what are the mechanics you consider? What does that look like? Well, uh, typically you work at two levels. The first one is uh, the uh, perception one. So you try to understand uh, visually what has to be included in the sheen because uh, uh, every piece of the sheen have to have a specific meaning for the individual. The, the, the best efficacy of virtual reality therapy is when you are able to develop a customized environment. In the past, we tried to create the uh, a virtual reality experience in which the therapist was able to put specific items inside the environment in order to create meaning because the external experience is the main source of meaning so the more you are able to understand what is meaningful for the individual and if you can put cues of the meaning inside the environment this is very powerful and can activate the brain of the individual now we are also trying to work on the automatic intuitive level that uh, 
is a new line of research in which we are working and it is based on the concept of uh, uh, interoceptive technology. So we know that uh, uh, inside our body, interception, the sense of uh, the feeling of uh, our internal body is critical in order to drive emotions. And uh, what we are trying to do is to create the virtual reality of the inside. Up to now, virtual reality has worked for the outside, for our senses, for uh, perception mostly. So uh, the visual channel, the smell, the touch and so on. What we are trying to do now is trying to modify through technology uh, the internal signals. For instance, we discovered that uh, there is a specific form of Oh, we got a little cut out. Effective time. Yeah. The, yeah the, just, 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 for, just, just for half a the, beat. I, just for half a beat, I lost you because the internet cut out for a second. Um, and yeah. what you said, you talked about creating introspective technologies, creating the VR on the inside. And then you said, for example, we have, and then I, I you left me hanging. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, for instance, we have. Uh, 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 the skin has a specific. Uh, uh, <coughs> uh, the, the skin has a specific uh, cells that uh, are directly connected to the heart and uh, to the insula. So, by stimulating this uh, uh, this part of the skin on the forehand, you are able to modify the insula and uh, the emotional part. And we are trying to understand. Uh, what is needed in order to influence the, the mechanism of the insula. So by using internal or external signals, we are trying to modify the insula, the behavior of the insula in order to uh, generate uh, emotions uh, internally. So we are working on externally on the meaning and internally on interoceptive signals in order to to improve the efficacy of the experience. Because if you are able to modify both the external world and the internal world, we have a very powerful tool. Unfortunately, we, have, uh, we are in the very early stage, but uh, uh, we have discovered that uh, pressure, sounds uh, have uh, a strong effect on uh, Many part of many internal part of the body, such as the heart, mm -hmm. uh, the vagus nerve, uh, the insula, that can be in some way modulated in order to uh, improve uh, the efficacy of uh, meaning inside virtual reality. Well, I don't know if I was clear enough. Sorry. I, I, no, no, I, I understand. I, I well, I don't. Let me let me see if I understand, and let me let me reflect back some things because I. I, I don't I don't understand if it's either one of two directions you're talking about. Yeah. Either one. So it sounds like you're trying to create introspective technologies, a yeah. way to kind of use uh, uh, VR as a visualization tool to kind of map your internal systems. And it sounds like you're using like kinesthetics, the sense of touch, um, as as one element to to stimulate. Um, what's going on the inside through pressure, through touch, through what do those means? That sounds like one piece of it. Um, but I'm not sure if you're talking about you want to 
you want to measure it or you want to influence it. So influencing means, you know, the rubbing the, the skin gives me a sense of connection and releases oxytocin. So now I feel a sense of connection or I'm having a biofeedback reading and I'm measuring my HRV and then I can tell if I'm being triggered. So are you, are you measuring, are you influencing, or are you trying to do a little bit of both? Now we, we are trying to influencing. So this is the, the, the big challenge in the sense that uh, uh, the idea is using this, this technology to modify the internal signals and uh, uh, reaching this. So we can using virtual reality for modifying the rational meaning that is based on the, the, the meaning you give to the experience. Then we use the uh, intuitive channels based on interception to modify internally uh, the emotion without any meaning, uh, uh, rational meaning attributed to the experience. We have, uh, for instance, uh, used this approach recently to reduce uh, uh, pain. Uh, we know that pain is produced by uh, our brain and uh, reducing the level of pain, uh, chronic pain in particular, is quite difficult. The, the idea was uh, using interoceptive technology to stimulate a specific part of our brain, uh, like in virtual reality. So the idea is that, uh, like virtual reality tries to simulate the external world, we try to simulate using interoceptive technology the internal world. We have also a paper that I can share with the audience to make this concept clear. Unfortunately, uh, it's now almost 10 p.m. for me in Italy, and I'm a little tired. Sorry for that. But we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it just a minute. I just want to. So, what it sounds like you're doing, and, and correct me on. So, let me give you a, a crude example. I have a VR headset on. I have. I then. Yeah. Take, I then I take a, a a lighter or a heat device and I put it on my hand. But then inside, yeah. uh, but then I have an I have an HRV device that measures my heart rate, and so you are you are influencing through the power of heat, touching the skin. You are measuring an unbiased, um, a, a direct limbic response through the HRV, and then inside virtual reality, you can modify that um, by saying if you're in a snow world, will that create less pain, or if you, if it looks like an oven, it's creating more heat and more pain. Is that what I understand? That's right. Yes. Okay. Great, great work of summarizing, but the concept is right. This one. That's beautiful. That's awesome. What's well, it? It sounds like the checks and balances where you're literally recreating someone's reality, both the internal, external, physical, all of that, all related together, and you're having this kind of value chains of checks and balances along the way, which it it it's it sounds like a daunting task. <laughs> yeah, because the, the real problem is the modeling of the internal, uh, the modeling of the internal body. But uh, yeah. now, through neuroscience, we have uh, uh, some uh, guidelines that drives uh, our analysis. Uh, this is uh, I, I shared with oh, you this it. paper that uh, uh, use this approach for pain. So we try to model pain on the internal uh, side and we try to understand how to use internal technology uh, interoceptive technology to modify it internally and this can be added to what has been done in the past uh, using virtual reality for reducing pain so we have two tools uh, virtual reality for outside and you have uh, typically 
destruction that has been used successfully for reducing pain. And then you have this uh, internal modulation based on interoceptive technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that all sounds fantastic. Uh, I think that there's one reality I think that you're leaving out of the mix, um, which, yeah. I, which I would like to say, so you, you have your internal mental models, right? Your predictive codings, right? You have your external environment, right? Which is you saying your, uh, the environment assigns meaning to it. Um, the only yeah. element that you're missing from that one is is our social reality. The ability that we have to, to basically create and co-create shared experiences, narrative meanings, not based upon what you think, but based upon what I think you think. And that yes, of course. So, is it? Uh, this is uh, uh, we are we are very aware of this. Uh, it's true. The social, uh, the social world uh, is a uh, so important part of our life. Uh, even now, that social media are a daily part of our experience. However, uh, creating uh, very good uh, virtual reality social experience is not easy yet. Uh, we tested yeah. different uh, technologies that are even promising, but uh, uh, we know that Facebook is working on the metaverse, so I expect uh, uh, new technologies for reaching this goal very soon. Uh, I tried the, the Facebook Horizon uh, system, but, well, <laughs> it's not uh, a good example of uh, what you are saying. But... Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, this social is still uh, a missing part of virtual reality experience. And uh, since the, the, the times of Second Life, uh, we have not seen yet a real social experience that is able to be effective, at least for uh, a clinical domain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. Yeah, and, and Horizons, uh, you know, Facebook tried to do what they typically do is copy the best person in the space, steal other features, and then and then push them out. Yeah, uh, yeah. Instagram yeah. with other ones, and they kind of fell flat on their face with the whole Horizon. So I think that thing's going to be shut down quick, fast, and in a hurry uh, because they just they just weren't able to execute. And there's some various reasons why that wasn't possible. Is there is there any other realities that we're missing um, besides the internal, the external, and the social? Are there, are there realities beyond that that um, that you can think of that are influenced by this? I'm I'm not aware of it, but I was curious if there's anything that you have in that one. I think that uh, the other dimension that we can manipulate is time. That is not uh, is including everyone. So uh, time includes uh, internal, external, social. But uh, biggest challenge is being able to to move these three realities over time in the past and in the future. So I think that uh, re-experiences mistakes in the past and uh, experiences, future experience uh, through digital technologies can be very powerful tools. We know that the ability of uh, re-experiencing the past and uh, inventing the future is uh, a critical ability of... Uh, mm our mind and uh, uh, digital technology can be very powerful and provide this opportunity to each one if the technology can achieve uh, uh, a big boost in, in the next uh, five ten years yeah and uh, one last uh, major question then we can wrap this up um, is is do you feel 
um, some people say that we have a collective consciousness or a collective unconsciousness that we all tap into, you know, when you drop in the states of flow or you do something else, um, but they feel like we are, we have somehow we're linked to a kind of collective consciousness that has like the sum of all of world's information. And this is kind of a, some, some thoughts. Um, if you look at like power versus force or other things like that, is there, do you have any beliefs, thoughts, theories, and this is going a bit more into the woo woo stage, of, of do you think that there is a collective unconsciousness or things that we can tap into that we just don't have access through? Well, I think that uh, our collective consciousness is based on common predictions. So uh, what is the, the background of uh, each culture is the type of prediction you can do and uh, you can achieve. In some sense, uh, uh, I think that the predictive coding approach also suggests us that uh, the collective uh, unconscious can be based on uh, uh, common predictions that are shared by the social world. So uh, uh, a culture essentially is based on shared prediction about uh, ourselves and the other people that uh, can drive our behavior. And uh, in this sense, I think that uh, it's true. Yeah. Okay, uh, it makes sense. It sounds like a more in the social reality side. Um, I'm just curious about that one. But uh, is uh, that's been fantastic, and this has been wonderful speaking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how they can get a hold of you and, and more find about your work? Well, if you want to know more about my work and read some of my paper, you can check my my website giuseppe.riva.com. So it's easy. And uh, I think that you can uh, find uh, some interesting uh, ideas that probably can drive you through a better future. Beautiful. Giuseppe, it has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you for staying up late with me and, and going deep with me at the same time. So uh, have a blessed and beautiful night over in Milan. And I will see you in another reality. Thank you, Dylan. It was a pleasure. Ciao to everyone. Oh, ciao. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.